If you're new, my name is Nathan Parikh, and I'm blessed to serve as the discipleship pastor here at Hallmark. It's a privilege to preach on this special Sunday, on this Palm Sunday, this week as we remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus together. Um, Today's passage takes place less than 24 hours until Jesus would be arrested. Uh, This is part of his final teachings to his disciples. And so today we'll be in John chapter 15, John chapter 15, and this is the seventh I am statement in the book of John, the seventh and final I am statement in the book of John, where Jesus will share with the disciples a lifelong process of living out the Christian life. If I ever have a choice between a process or a product or a one-time fix, my default is always to pick the product. I wish that I could work out one time and be jacked for life. (laughs) I wish that I could eat healthy once or skip the cookies one time and be healthy for life. But sadly, that's not the way it works, is it? A bodybuilder is a bodybuilder not because he works out one time, but because day in and day out, he works out. Someone who is a healthy eater, their diet, their nutrition is something that they keep an eye on, not just one time, but day in and day out. It's a process. And we understand that, I think, with our physical health, but oftentimes I tend to forget that with my spiritual health. Oh, I prayed one time, now I'm good for a few more days. I read my Bible on Sunday, and that should take me through the entirety of of the week. I attended church on Christmas and Easter, and that should get me through the rest of the year. But we know that if we want to be spiritually healthy, it's not a one-time fix. It's not a one-time thing. Our walk with Christ is a process. This whole series, Pastor John's been saying, I am changes who I am. And most changes that God does in our hearts, in our lives, they are not going to be changes that happen overnight. They're going to be changes that happen over time and through a process. So what we'll see today in John chapter 15 is that just like you can't eat healthy once or work out only one time, following Jesus is more than just making a one-time decision. It's a lifetime commitment to be connected to him. If you only remember one phrase from today's message, this is the phrase that I want you to remember, that following Jesus is more than making a one-time commitment. It's a lifetime commitment to be connected to him. So let's start in John chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Father, I ask that as we look at your word this morning, that you would teach us what it means to abide, and you focus our hearts on you. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. We see, first of all, in John chapter 15 and verse 1, that Jesus 
is the true vine. He says, I am the true vine. He doesn't just call himself a vine or the vine. He says, I am the true vine. And the reason for that is because to his immediate audience, to his Jewish followers, his Jewish disciples, this imagery of the vine was loaded with meaning. Because in the story of the Old Testament, there was another vine. But this vine failed to produce fruit. And that vine was Israel. See, as they heard Jesus say, I am the true vine, they're, they're preparing for Passover week. On the third day of every Passover, in Jewish tradition, they would recite Psalm chapter 80. And in Psalm chapter 80, God is speaking about how he rescued Israel from Egypt. And he describes Israel as his vine. Except Israel failed to obey the Lord. Israel failed to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their mind. And so they were going to be cast aside. In Isaiah chapter 5, uh, listen to this passage in, starting in verse 3 of Isaiah chapter 5. This is God speaking to the failure of Israel to be the fruitful vine that he desired. He says, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel." And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Almost every time Israel as, is described as the vine in the Old Testament, it's described from a negative context, from how they have failed to produce the fruit that God was looking for. Jeremiah talks about this. Uh, in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 15, it's an entire chapter devoted to this idea of Israel failing to be the vine that God desired. Because what was Israel's intended purpose? Their intended purpose was to be a vine that would stretch out across the world and extend God's blessings. But instead, they failed. They disobeyed. They didn't love the Lord their God. They turned aside to other gods. And because of that, God said he would then pluck them up. He would burn them. Very similar imagery to what Jesus will use here in John chapter 15. So when Jesus says, I am the true vine, he's saying, I am going to succeed where Israel failed. And that's the message of the gospel over and over again. Every time that you and I try to perform and do things on our own, we ultimately always fall short. But Jesus steps up here. He says, I am going to do what you could not do. Although Israel was faithless, I will be faithful. When Israel was disobedient, I will be obedient. Israel failed to extend God's blessings into the world, and so now I have arrived to extend the hope and message of salvation for everybody. Jesus is the true vine. But we also see here the involvement of God the Father as well. The Father inspects the branches. End of verse 1 says, My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. So this word for vine dresser is just a common word in the Greek for farmer. 
Um, and so we see that the farmer here, he approaches the vine, and some branches are cut off. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. The father cuts off branches that don't bear fruit. Now, why are they not bearing fruit? In verse 6, he says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. They're failing to produce fruit because they are failing to abide in Christ. And we'll talk more about what that looks like here in just a few verses. But one key thing to realize is that all throughout the Bible, but also a recurring theme in the Apostle John's writings, is that there are believers who are not true believers. There are disciples who are not true disciples. As Jesus is teaching this, one of his disciples, Judas, is actively betraying him. He's actively turning his back on Christ. That's a theme that we see throughout Scripture, but also throughout all of the writings of John, is that there are people who seem like they are connected to Jesus. That connection is really only temporary. That connection is really only surface level. There are fruitless branches, or there are fake Christians in the church. Jesus dealt with it, the apostles and the first church dealt with it, and every church ever since then has dealt with the fact that there are fake Christians. There are people who have the label, but they don't have the fruit. It's not anything new. And so people can often think that they are a Christian because they have a surface level background or a temporary spiritual experience. Uh, maybe their parents or grandparents were Christian, and so they've taken on that label of Christian for themselves. Maybe they grew up attending church when they were little. Maybe a long time ago, 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, they, they prayed a prayer, but since then, there's been no evidence of life change. Since then, there's been no fruit. And John here, Jesus here, is giving us a warning. He says, those branches will be cut off. Those branches that do not bear fruit are not genuine. That's heavy. But what I'm not saying, and what Christ is not saying, is that if you ever sin, if you ever fall short, that you are not a believer. And one of the reasons why we know that is that in verse 3, Jesus says to them, but you are already clean. And that's a direct connection to his conversation with Peter in John chapter 13. Remember when Peter, when, uh, when Jesus is trying to wash all of the disciples' feet, and Peter's like, hey, you're Jesus, you shouldn't be washing my feet. And he says to him, well, if I don't wash you, then you have no part in me. And then Peter, being Peter, is like, well, then just give me a whole bath then. But then Jesus says to him, no, you are already clean. I just need to wash your feet. It's the exact same word that we see here in John chapter 15. And Peter, Jesus knows this, is a very few hours away from betraying Jesus himself, from denying Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. He was going to fail and sin miserably. And yet Jesus calls him clean. And so what is the difference then? If some are bearing fruit and some are not, God is not looking for perfection. If you've been a Christian any length of time, you know that since you've become a Christian, you have not been perfect. Your life has not been perfect. I've often desired that since I've become a follower of Christ, uh, that my life would just be up and to the right, 
constantly increasing, constantly becoming better, constantly more like Jesus. But really, the experience is more like this, up, down. Sometimes good, sometimes bad. Sometimes some stagnation, sometimes good, sometimes bad. But over time, are you becoming more like Christ? Over time, is there any evidence, is there any fruit that the Son of God has changed you from the inside out? Is there proof that you are who you say you are? And that's why we can't rest in the fact that our grandparents told us that we were Christians, and 30 years since then, nothing in our life has proved that to be the case. We need to rest in our belief and trust in Christ, and that, that belief will then produce fruit. Some different than others, God works on us all. We all have our different struggles and issues, but God has promised that if you are his follower, you will bear fruit. So when God inspects you, what will he find? Again, he's not looking for perfection. None of us can be or will be perfect this side of heaven. What God is looking for is evidence, fruit. And we'll talk more about what that fruit is here in a minute. So some branches are cut off. Other branches are pruned. He says every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. Fruitful Christians are true Christians. So pruning has nothing to do, again, with gaining or losing our salvation. This is God working on us to make us more like Christ because we are not perfect people. We are developing people. This is the process of the Christian life that God has chosen to allow for each of us. Theoretically, if God wanted to, could he not just snap his finger at salvation and you be instantly delivered from all of your temptations, all of your addictions, all of your baggage? In theory, he could, right? He is God. He can do whatever he wants. But God has chosen for us not an instantaneous fix, but a process, a process of abiding in him that over time makes us more like Jesus. But the thing about pruning is that it's often painful. The vine dresser will take a knife, he will take shears, and he will cut the branches. And being cut does not feel good. Going through hard times never is something that we desire. But oftentimes it's those darkest, most painful moments in our life that Jesus is most sweet to us. I've been in church my whole life and I've never seen anyone rush up to the altar and grab the pastor by the hand and say, Pastor, I need Jesus. My life is too good. My bank account is too full. I haven't been sick in so long I can't even remember. My kids are too awesome. I have to have Jesus now. That's not how it works, is it? It's the moments of crisis, the moments of doubt, the moments of fear, the moments when we realize we are not in full control of our lives that drive us to Christ, that drive us back to our loving Father. So we have to trust that the vine dresser, he knows what he's doing. When God allows pain into your life, it's not at random, it's not by chance, it's not because he's cruel, it's because he is good. He is allowing us to be pruned for the purpose of us becoming more like Christ. The vine dresser has a good plan and good intentions for us as his branches. He's not wasting his time when he prunes. 
I love the way Hebrews 12 talks about this. In verse 6, it says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. In verse 11, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. See, God has the end in sight, not the here and now. When God looks at you, when God looks at his plans for you, he's looking for what you will ultimately become. He is looking at how he is forming you into the image of Jesus, not what is your comfort level right now. God is far wiser and greater than us. He is far more patient than us, and he is willing to take his time. He is willing to put us through a process so that we can become more like Christ. I love how Greg Matt says it. He says, God loves tomorrow's fruit more than today's leaves, so he clips. He loves tomorrow's fruit more than today's leaves. God's desire for you, if you are a believer, is that you bear fruit. And so that means you are going to be pruned. I am going to be pruned. We are going to experience painful circumstances in our life that we might not understand why, but God will use those things to make us more like himself. So maybe today you've been going through a pruning, and instead of accepting it, instead of trusting that God is good, you've been fighting against it. It's made you angry. It's made you bitter. God, why have you allowed this into my life? Why has this person entered into my life? Why has this circumstance happened to me? Why is my health deteriorated? Why are my finances having problems? Why is my marriage broken? All these things, we wonder, God, why are these things happening? God has allowed it for a purpose, and that purpose is to make you more like him. So then what is the key to fruitfulness? Look at verse 4. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So we need to abide in Jesus. That word abide is key, not in just in this passage, but in all of the writings of John. In the New Testament, that word abide, or your translation might say remain, it occurs 43 times. And of those 43 times, John is the author of it 40 times. So John loves the word abide. Okay, so what does this word abide mean? For our definition today, the word abide means to keep on staying, keep on remaining, or to continue. It's more than a one-time experience. It's more than a one-time encounter with Jesus. It conveys this idea of continually having intimate fellowship with Jesus. That's what it means to abide, to keep on staying connected to the person, the words, and the love of Jesus. In verse 4, Jesus says, abide in me. Stay connected to him as the person. In verse 7, he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. And in verse 10, he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. We stay connected to the person and the words and the love of Christ. That's what it means to abide. It's not a one-time thing. It's a lifelong process that God is seeking to do in each of us as his followers. And one important distinction is that we have to understand that the abiding comes before the fruit bearing. We don't say, God, I'm going to obey you and do all these commands, and then that means I'm going to abide. Now, the whole message of the gospel 
is that we love God, we have a relationship with him, and then he creates in us the desire and the ability to obey him. The abiding comes first, and the obedience, the fruit-bearing, comes after. And God's command to us in this passage is not to bear fruit. Our command is to abide. That's why in this passage, Jesus says the, the word abide 11 times in John chapter 15. That's his command to us, abide. So then who is responsible for the fruit? It's the vine, Jesus. He has promised that if we are connected to him, he will produce the fruits of righteousness in our life. So what is our main focus? It's not the religious outward actions that will then earn God's favor. Check, I'm abiding, now I'm good to go. It's no, I am in relationship, I'm in continual connection with Christ, and as I have that connection, God has promised that he will produce in me fruit. Because I don't produce the fruit as the branch. That's the vine's job. I have to stay connected to the vine. That's my job. That's our job as the branches. So to put it simply, we abide to obey. We don't obey in order to abide. The gospel is not do good things so that you might be approved by God. It's love God and you'll do good things. There's a big difference there, an important distinction there. So what we are called to work on and grow in is our love for Christ. Why had Israel failed to be the vine? Because they failed to love God. And when they failed to love God, that led them to idolatry, that led them to reject his commandments, and that led to them being punished. The root cause of all of that was that they did not love the God whom they were to love. He says in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. If we abide, the fruit will take care of itself. Jesus will take care of the fruit in our lives. Again, that doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. That doesn't mean you'll be sinless or without problems. What it does mean is that you will have evidence in your life that Christ is in you. There will be markers in your life that you can look at over time, say, I am different now than what I was. God has changed me now from what I was five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And we all know that some sins, they're really persistent, aren't they? They persist, and it's a lifelong struggle. But part of the evidence that the fruit of the Spirit, that the fruit of Jesus is in you, that it is a struggle, that you are fighting against it, and that over time you are seeing, maybe slowly but surely, victory over those sins in your life. And so as we think about this abiding, we realize that we can't do it on our own. That's why he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. You and I were designed to be dependent. You and I were designed to need the vine. As Americans, as Texans, that kind of language of being needy, of being desperate, we don't really like those types of words to describe ourselves. I want to be independent. I want to be self-reliant. I don't want to need anyone or anything. But Jesus says, if you want to be successful spiritually, you have to be desperate for me. You have to realize that apart from me, you can really do nothing. Apart from Jesus, humans can do cool stuff, right? We can build cities, we can make cool technology, but he's saying that if you want to have a life that matters, if you want to do anything that lasts in all of eternity, you have to be connected to me. You have to be connected to the vine. On our own, we can do nothing that will matter in eternity or that will bring us true, lasting joy. 
This is the message of the Bible. This is the process of the Christian life. But the problem is, is that I tend to live as though Jesus said, apart from me, you can do most things. I often lack that desperation that says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And when I live as though he said, you can do most things, then I pray less. I talk to him less. I read his word less because I think I've got this. But God in his mercy will eventually show us, doesn't he, that you don't got this. Something will happen in your life that will drive you to your knees that says you need someone greater than yourself. You need someone more powerful than yourself. You need someone that can conquer the sin in your heart that you cannot conquer. Jesus is the source of life. He is the Christian life. Jesus is the Christian life. Oftentimes we equate the Christian life with Bible studies and devotions and church attendance, all these good things, things that God wants us to do. But that in and of itself is not the Christian life. The Christian life is wrapped up in the person of Jesus. Because you can do Christian things and not have Jesus. One of the craziest examples of this in Scripture is in, in uh, Revelation 3, when we see this church in Laodicea, they're having a church meeting, they're doing church, but guess who's not there? Jesus. Where is he? He's on the outside, knocking, hoping they'll let him in. We have the appearance of Christianity, we have the appearance of religious deeds, but that is not what the Christian life is. The Christian life is a relationship with Jesus himself. You know, last February in 2021, we were all reminded of our delicate dependence on electricity. Remember the great ice storm of 2021? Lost all power. It was rough. It didn't matter if you had the latest tech, the latest appliances in your home. Here's the thing. If you don't have any electricity, it's all meaningless. There's no power. In church, we can have all of the greatest trappings of Christianity. We can have a great building. We can have money. We can have awesome music and programs and all of these things that are good. But if we're not plugged into the power, if we're not abiding in Christ as a church, if we're just a bunch of people that show up to do a religious show every week, then God has said we will not experience the true fruit that he has promised us. God desires more for us than just a religious exercise. He wants us to experience life, and that life can only be found through him. If we want God to continue to use us, Hallmark, if we want to continue to ask God to, have, to use us, to have more of an impact in our community than we ever have had before, then the secret is not our marketing strategy, it's not the size of our parking lot, it's not how much money you give. It's about you and I sitting in the pews every week. Am I connected with Christ? Are we as a church abiding in Christ? That's the secret. The secret is not all of the good external things that we do. The secret is Jesus. And that's not so much a secret, is it? But we get so used to that, we take it for granted, and we think, well, I need to do this or that in order to be blessed, in order to succeed. But God has called us not to worry about the fruit. He's called us to worry about the abiding. Focus on your relationship with him. That's our responsibility, abide. And he has promised that he will produce the fruit in us.
So then what is this fruit that we're talking about? What is the evidence? What are some evidences that you are bearing fruit in your life that God is looking for? There are many examples of this in Scripture, but in this immediate passage in John chapter 15, there are two things that I want to point out. The first thing we see in, is, is in verse 11, and that we will have a joyful relationship with God. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. I always appreciate in the Bible when Jesus tells us why he's just told us the previous verses. In verses 1 through 11, he is really focused in on our relationship with God. And then verses 12 through 17, he's focused in on our, on our relationship with other people. So he says, why am I telling you this? So that your joy, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. You know, abiding in Christ is not supposed to be a chore. Walking with the Lord is supposed to bring us joy. It's supposed to refresh us. It's supposed to give us the strength that we need to make it through this crazy world. Being with Christ is an honor, a privilege, and a joy. And that over time, our hearts should long for his presence and his power in our lives more and more and more. Also, we see that one of the evidences of this fruit is a loving relationship with others. He says in verse 17, These things I command you so that you will love one another. We see him talk about this over and over again in the Gospels uh, when the Pharisees come to him and try to trap him and say, What's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second is like it, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Those two always go together. We can't say that we love God and then hate people and think we're okay. People, we can be annoying, right? We can be frustrating. Driving here at church, maybe someone cut you off. Anyone else struggle with road rage every now and then? I-35, don't go there. But oftentimes, it's in our culture, it's, it's popular to say, you know what, I really love Jesus, but the church, not so much. I really love Jesus, but the people, not really for me. And while I understand that sentiment, that is totally not in the Bible. He said, if you love God, you will love others. If you love God, you will love his people, even when they disagree with you, even when you have different preferences, even when you are at odds with one another, yet we are still called to love one another. And this is so important that he says in John chapter 13, verse 35, by this will all people know that you are my disciples, by how you love one another. It wasn't our preaching, it wasn't our music, it wasn't all of the other things that we can be tempted to emphasize. The main primary evidence to the world that you and I are who we say we are is that do we actually love each other? Do we actually care for one another? More than just sitting next to each other in the pews, but when we, when we are in need, do we step up? When we are struggling, do we help? When we disagree and can't get along, do we still love each other anyway? That's when it gets really tough, right? You get a room full of people this size, and at some point, you're going to offend somebody. At some point, someone's going to offend you. What happens then? If it's love, then you're bearing the fruit of Jesus. If it's just what everyone else does in the world, get angry, talk bad about each other behind each other's back, get bitter, unforgiving, that's not the fruit of the Spirit. That's not the fruit that God wants for us as his church and as his people. 
Think about the most mature, godly people that you know. Odds are that they are very kind, generous, and forgiving. Even though they've been through a lot in their life, even though they've experienced hardship and pain, yet they are still sweet. Yet they are still kind. Why is that? It wasn't because of a one-time thing that happened to them. It was because of a process over time that God worked on them and molded them into the image of Jesus. And that's what God wants for each of you this morning. If you're a follower of him, he wants to mold you into the image of Christ. He wants you to change from the inside out. He wants to do what only he can do within you. He wants to change your desires. And he has not promised you an easy life. He has not promised us freedom from all the troubles that we see in this world. He has not promised our brothers and sisters in Ukraine and Romania that they will not be suffering. But what he has promised is that in the pruning, in the pain, he has a process to make us more like Christ. And that process is good. And that good is more important to him than our immediate comfort. So in this last I am statement, Jesus is sending us out to live the Christian life, a life that is in love with Christ. That is what should characterize us. Following Jesus is more than just a one-time decision. It's a lifetime commitment to be connected to him. As the band comes up this morning, I'm going to ask that each of you take a moment to think and pray about what God is leading you to do, how he wants you to respond this morning. Just right there in your seat, Maybe you're a, a follower of Christ here this morning and you realize, man, I have lost the joy in my relationship with God. It's become more of a drag, more of a chore, more of an obligation, and my walk with Christ has not produced in me this joy that Jesus wants us to have. Or maybe your relationship with Jesus, you feel like that's going well, but you realize that your love for other people has grown cold. You realize that you fall kind of into that camp of, man, I really love Jesus, but the church, but the people, maybe not so much. I think Jesus is calling us this morning to say, to, to repent of that and ask him to grow within us the fruit that will love not just those that we get along with, but everyone that is here in this room. Or maybe you realize that you're lacking love for your enemies. Maybe there's that person at work, or that family member that is just grating against you. There's a a sour point in that relationship and it's turned into bitterness. It's turned into anger. I believe God is calling us to repent of that, to say, Father, please produce the fruit of love in my life. Or maybe you feel like you've been able to go through life mostly dependent on yourself, that apart from Jesus, you can do most things. I just want to encourage you this morning to just to redeclare your dependence on God. Say, God, I need you. Not just a little bit, but a lot. Not just for some things, but for all things. If I want my life to matter, if I want my life to have an impact for all of eternity, I need you. And maybe God has you going through some pruning right now. Some suffering, some struggles, some some trials that you did not expect, that you don't understand. Say, God, why have you allowed this into my life? Why is this pain? Why is this suffering? Why is this circumstance here? Trust that he has a good plan for you. Trust that the father, the vine dresser, is pruning you for a purpose, and that purpose is good. 
Or maybe this morning you kind of resonated with the fact that there are Christians who are fake Christians. And as you examine your life, like Nathan, to be honest, I know that years ago I made a profession of faith or I just always assumed that I was a Christian because my parents told me so or my grandparents told me so. But when I look at my life, it doesn't really look like Jesus. I don't see the evidence that I'm looking for, that Jesus is looking for. If that's you this morning, what a great week this is to give your life to Christ. As we talk about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, why did he do that? He did that for you. He did, he did that so that you would not have to experience the wrath of God's judgment, but that you could be saved. And he's promised that if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, he will save you, and he will produce fruit within you in your life. And so whether you're a Christian today that has struggled with abiding, struggled to submit to God's pruning, ask for his help. If you're here today and you realize that I I don't know that I'm a true branch, I I can't see the evidence of God's fruit in my life, there's no magic prayer that you pray, but I'm going to ask that you just simply admit that you are a sinner, believe that Jesus is who he said he is, the Son of God, that he died for your sins, that he rose again the third day, and confess your sins to him. And he has promised that you will be saved. The Bible says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so, Father, I ask this morning that you would work on my heart, work on the hearts of everyone here, everyone who's watching online right now, that those of us who need to relearn, re-understand what it means to abide, that we would do so. That if we're going through pruning right now, that we would submit ourselves to that and trust that in spite of the pain, you are good. And Father, I ask for those here this morning who are struggling to see the fruit in their life, who have doubts about whether or not they are truly followers of you. I ask, Father, that fear and pride would not keep them from following you, but that they would today, right now, would simply say, Father, forgive me, save me. And Lord, I thank you so much that you are a kind, gracious, loving Savior, that when we come to you, you don't approach us with anger or vengeance, but Father, you've promised us grace and mercy. I thank you so much for that. I pray and ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. If Christ is working on your heart this morning, you pray right there in your seat. Come forward down to the altar. I'll be here as well. And let's continue to worship together.